0: that what the law could not do, Christ came and provided. And we pray, Lord, as we look at your word, that, God, you would help us to understand the glorious difference and the glorious superiority of the new way versus the old. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. And, God, we do recognize that apart from your spirit, that is a futile, Effort. So, Lord, I pray that you'd open up our eyes. Lord, I pray from the youngest to the oldest in this room that God, we would understand your truth. And, Lord, through the power of your spirit, we'd respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 13, 7 through 13, really. And the title of the message this morning is A Far Better. Covenant, a far better covenant. You know, that word keeps coming up over and over. And I really think about it like that. I mean, I was thinking in my own study, the book of Hebrews, I feel like keeps getting better. And that's a fitting word because it's a fitting contextual word because he's writing to a group of Jews that had come to Christ. And these Christians were tempted to be in despair because of persecution and pressure. And due to the persecution and pressure, they were tempted to walk away from Christianity and head towards back into the old of Judaism. And what does he do? He says, no, why would you ever do that? Jesus is better. Starting in chapter one, Jesus is better than all. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua, better than the tabernacle better than the temple, better than the priesthood. On and on and on, he seeks to establish the supremacy of Christ over all. And I pray that if you've been with us, that you're seeing a common theme. It's not just that Jesus is supreme over Judaism, Jesus is the king, he is Lord. He's supreme over all. He's worthy of your worship, he's worthy of my worship, He's worthy to be honored and glorified. So today, as we look at verses 6 through 13, we're going to see several different ways that the new covenant is superior to the old. Let's read verse 6 down to verse 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Several different ways the new covenant is better. We're gonna jump right in. The first way we see that it is better in the way it is mediated, in the way it is mediated. And you see that in verse 6, immediately. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. in the way that it is mediated, I want you to think about this. What does it mean, mediate? Because if you don't understand that word, it's going to be hard to understand this point. Mediated. What is he saying here? It's one who mediates between two parties. I was looking at a lexicon. Basically, this is an English dictionary of Greek words, and it said some fascinating things. One who mediates between two parties, one who unites parties, or who mediates for peace. And then I love this statement that was in the lexicon. Christ is thus called the mediator because, in man's behalf, he satisfies the claims of God upon man. This is significant. He stands as our mediator. Now, when we think about the old covenant, we think about how there was a mediator in the old. We're going to look at that. I want you to think of this because I was watching something the other day that really made me mad. I was watching a preacher out of Florida in a large church and he made this statement. He said he was doing something in the Old Testament and he spoke about how the people were in rebellion with God and then the man made this statement. He said the people that we are trying to reach are not in rebellion with God. If they're not in rebellion with God, then why do they need a mediator? Do you see my point? You see, there's a, if you have a flimsy understanding of depravity, it leads to all types of challenges and struggles in the New Testament. Because the problem is we are in rebellion with God. And whether we recognize the acts of treason, we've committed against a holy creator by our unwillingness to follow him. And as Romans 1 says in our suppression of the truth, what have we done? We have literally brought ourselves under the wrath of God. Now you may be thinking, wow, that is horrible news and I can't believe you would say that. We will never understand the supremacy of his mediator role until we understand our predicament. But here, what do we see? I've got good news for you, grace upon grace. The Lord Jesus Christ called the mediator, because in man's behalf, he satisfies the claims of God upon man. Think about it. Here we are standing in rebellion against a holy God, and yet God comes and rescues us. God comes and takes our place as a substitute, perfectly obedient as the God-man. This is the glory of what the new covenant is all about. He's a better mediator. The old covenant had examples of mediators. We see this with priest and high priest in the Old Testament, those that served in the line of Aaron. You know, Hebrews has made it clear that they were designed by God to be there. We we see not only the priest in the way that they served in the tabernacle and in the temple, Moses served as a mediator. It says in Galatians 3, 20, and in Exodus 20, 19. On and on, you even see when you get into the prophets, in a sense, the prophets served as a mediator between the people and God. But what we have to understand, as one commentator beautifully put it, All of these examples are simply copies and shadows of the true mediator. The true mediator who would be the representative of man, who would come to stand and bridge the gap between God the Father and mankind. God the Son was willing to take upon himself the sin of humanity in order that we might be reconciled to God. He's the mediator. And Hebrews chapter 12 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Going back a few chapters in Hebrews 9, look what this says. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He stands in our place. The covenant is better in the way that it mediates, but a second way that it is far superior. It's superior and it shows up in the way that it was promised, in the way that it was promised. Now, as you look at verse six, look what he does at the end of the verse. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, now he keeps going, since it is enacted on better promises. Now this gets fun. What kind of promises are the foundation of such a glorious covenant? Well, one Tommy read for you earlier, and it's going to be in our text from verse 8 down to verse 12. It's the glorious promise that Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34 gives us that's re-quoted in Hebrews 8 verses 8 through 12. But are there more promises that speak of this day? I want us to look at that. You see, the promises are there all the way through. And when we look at these promises, look at verse eight, for he finds fault with them when he says. It's interesting here because as we'll see in a moment, I think what the text is saying here, it's not so much that he finds fault with them, although that is a biblical principle. I think what he's speaking of here, and you could take the grammar to mean for finding fault with it, finding fault with the old covenant both are involved, I mean, because he finds fault with us through our sin under the old covenant, but I think that's what he's saying. And then he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is language of a prophetic sense. He's saying, look, I'm making promises, and these promises are all about what is to come. They're all about the future. And when you get in the book of I, you, you see this phrase, the days are coming. I'll give you a few examples. Isaiah 39, behold, the days are coming. You see it in Amos chapter eight, behold, the days are coming. You, on and on in the Old Testament, you see this kind of language that speaks of God promising something that he will fulfill in the future. But where do we see this leading up to? Because Jeremiah 31 is the thunderous lightning strike of that promise in its specificity of the new covenant that would be inaugurated by Messiah. But think about Isaiah. Isaiah gives us some clues here. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light Four, the nations. I love this because when we deal with the suffering servant songs, the servant songs of Isaiah, and we deal with Messiah, Messiah, the one who would come to redeem is going to be a covenant for the people. In Isaiah 49, if you got a pen and you want to write these down, Isaiah 49 verse eight says similar language. You see it in Isaiah 54, 10. Isaiah 1 through five over and over, there is Messiah who is going to come and he is going to bring a covenant. You think, wow, what what is this covenant? Isaiah 59 verse 21, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, Isaiah 61, on and on and on, there's anticipation of a day of when Messiah is going to do something, and it is brought about in what we read in the text right here. Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And again, you've heard Tommy read it, but just to look at the similarity, it's a direct quote. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And as we kept reading, this is a brand new kind of covenant. This covenant affects the inside of us. This is affecting the heart and the mind. This is affecting our ability to know God and to relate with him. This is a covenant in which we experience the mercy of God. I love this because another passage that reminds us of this promise that is given in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, is Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules in the way that it is mediated, in the way that it is promised, thirdly, in the way that it is necessary. In the way that it is necessary. Now look at the language of what he says. Look at verse seven. For if... That first covenant had been faultless. The idea is blameless. If it had had no blame, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. I, was, uh, I told you about when I went to North Carolina, I went out before youth camp, I wanted to check out if this place was a viable option for camp this summer. And I took my buddy Will down here how you doing, Will? And uh, we had a good trip, didn't we, man? Good trip. And we went, and we went to the airport in Huntsville, and we had to rent a car. And uh, I don't know if you've done this often, but for bigger people, it's, it's just, you're nervous about getting in that car. And I was going to be driving a long time, so I got in the car. It was a pretty car. I think it was like a gray Toyota RAV4. I have nothing against Toyota RAV4s. They're nice cars. They're similar to the size of my car is, but I couldn't get comfortable in the seat. And it smelled like smoke. And I got in there and I, we were already trying to get out of town. It was late. And I looked at Will and I was like, buddy, I don't know if this is going to work. And so I went back to the counter. I walked all the way back, all the way through baggage claim, got there at the desk. And I said, ma'am, I said, uh, I said, is there anything else you've got? And she said, no, there's not. And I didn't want to pay the extra for the next upgrade. And I was like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. But she says, but, and I like that word. She said, but we've got another one I'm going to upgrade you to. And I immediately was, I was really excited. And 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 immediately we went out. So if you would have been at the Huntsville Airport and you would have been a, I don't know, a Huntsville Airport cop, and you would have seen me drive by In a gray Toyota RAV4, and you've been like, There he goes. Well, guess what? I came right back and I went in and I said, You know what? I don't think this works. She's like, Sorry, I got another one. We go to it, and immediately it's nicer. I'm like 50 yards from it, and I'm like, Well, we got hooked up, buddy. This is going to be good. It was bigger, it was nicer, it had features the other one didn't dream of having, it had everything in it. And now, if you would have been sitting as a mall cop, or not a mall cop, but airport cop, and you would have seen me go by in a green Grand Cherokee, you'd have been like, wait a minute, why is he coming by now in a green Grand Cherokee? If there had been no fault with the Toyota, you would never would have seen the Grand Cherokee see what's happening? And God's wisdom, God designed in the wisdom of through the Godhead a plan that would reveal the holiness of God. When we look at the law, what do we see? You see this covenant that was designed, that was given to the fathers, that was given to them at Sinai when they were coming out of Egypt, it was when God gave them the Ten Commandments, and God gave them the law, and the law is holy, and the law is good, and when we look at the law, we see the holy requirements and the holy character of God, and that is what we need, and that is righteous and just, and that is a gift of God's grace to give it to us. It reveals that to us, but it also reveals our sinfulness. But here's the problem. God knew in his perfect design that that law and that old covenant could not be capable of bringing us into the presence of God. It could not be capable of helping us draw nigh into the presence of the Lord. You see, this is important because God designed the law. Galatians says the law is a tutor that brings us to Christ. Some people are always challenged with the idea that the law of God is their ticket to gain access to God. You say, why is that? Well, they say, wait a minute, God tells me how to live, therefore I'll do it. God gives me the 10 commandments. The commandments are good and perfect. I'll live by them. And in living by them, God will accept me and God will bring me into his heaven. But here's the problem. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Over and over, the wages of sin is death. When you've broken the law in only one point, you're guilty of violating the entirety of the law, James says, all of this is a problem. The law is not meant to be a ladder in which I walk up just like Jacob's ladder to get to God. No, the law puts me in prison. But by the holy, gracious design of God, that covenant by the grace of God is meant to bring me to prison whereby I look and see only one way of escape, the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross in which he dies for me. You see, what he's doing here, he's saying, look, I know you're tempted to go back to the old way, but I need you to understand something. If you go back to the old way, that old way is incapable of forgiving you. That old way is incapable of allowing you to know God. That old way is incapable of doing a work in you because the law commands, but it doesn't give me the ability to keep the commands. And now we see this new covenant emerging, 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 <laughs> sorry, problem in my brain there, back to normal, I think. The, uh, it's coming along here because what he's saying is, he's like, look, this is necessary because God saw the better way in Christ Jesus. Remember what he said in Hebrews 7, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? You remember what uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter two? Galatians chapter two, verse 21. For if righteousness had come through the law, basically, then what's the need for Christ? Christ died for no reason. If, If righteousness can come because we are good boys and girls good adults. We work hard. We pay taxes. We're nice to our neighbors. We're good people. We're just honest, good, hardworking people that make mistakes. You know, God knows our heart, but here's a problem. The problem is if we can gain access to God by being good people, then why did Jesus Christ have to die on a cruel cross for our sins? And remember, 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, all of this is adding up. It is necessary. But not only is it superior in those other three ways, it's superior in the way it is established. This gets fun. Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord. It's interesting. The word establish is the idea of accomplishing or performing. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish. Here's the question I want you to ask here. When was the new covenant established? Now think with me. We see that it had to be in the way that it was mediated, in the way that it was promised, in the way that it was necessary, in the way that it is established now. It's important to see this because when did it, when was it accomplished? When was this performed? We go back to Hebrews 7. Notice something. The second half of the verse there. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, if you could have lived in—sorry uh, for the size of the font—if you've got great eyesight, you can see this. This is actually an eye test slash sermon today. The, uh, <laughs> the if you could go back to Jerusalem and we had a uh, apartment and we were living over near the uh, the temple. What would you have noticed if you could have observed the activity around all of the temple? Or what if you had been a family that was wandering in the wilderness with the portable tent of meeting known as the tabernacle? The one thing you'd know is that the tabernacle, you know, all the time we tell people, man, you got an easy job. Pastors hear that all the time. People say, man, what do you do? what do you even do during the week? I've heard that a lot of times. And, and uh, our people will see somebody and, you know, we got jokes about all kinds of professions. Man, easy money. You don't do anything. The one thing you could never do if you were a citizen of this movement through the wilderness is accuse the priest of doing nothing. They were busy all the time. They offered sacrifices all the time. Why? Why? They not only had to offer sacrifices for themselves when they sinned, they had to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So one of the wonders of the glory of the priesthood of Christ is that when he offers a sacrifice, he doesn't use animals. He offers up himself. Why? Because he is the God-man. He's the one who sits at the right hand of God one in substance, one in nature with the Father, but he's also the one who is a compassionate and sympathetic high priest. While sympathetic yet sinless, he is the perfect God man. He offers up one time and he does it and it is completed. It is established. You see, the passage in the New Testament that really will be of new meaning to you if you've never studied Hebrews 8 or 2 Corinthians 3 about the new covenant will be Luke twenty two twenty 20 at the Last Supper where Jesus says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now think about it. There they are in the upper room and there it is, you know, I was, I was reading this back around Easter and thinking about the timeline over the last years. There they are close to midnight. It's getting late in the evening. And what is he doing? He's speaking about now the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, and he's speaking about the fact of what he is about to do on that cross. He's going to shed his blood for our sins. You see, the, the Lord's Supper was pointing to the work of Jesus Christ poured out for sinners, and it was pointing to the beginning and the inauguration of everything Jeremiah 31 promised, of everything Isaiah spoke of when the Messiah would come and bring the covenant, of everything Ezekiel promised in Ezekiel 36 when he said, this is no longer gonna be external. God's now gonna do surgery on your heart. He's gonna do something in you that's never happened before. It was established at the cross. Let's keep moving. The fifth way, and my slide's messed up, so I'm gonna give it to you. It's in the way it is internal. In the way it is internal is number five. And look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, in the Old Covenant, it was based off of conditions. You could read about those conditions in Deuteronomy 30. 15 through 18, 1 Samuel 12, 14 through 15, you read about those conditions and the people broke the conditions. And, and what happened was because the law had no ability to enable people to keep the law, they were stuck. They, they, they couldn't follow it. But what do we see now? We see that God promises he's gonna do an inner work. This is amazing, Uh Have you ever noticed that the law reveals, Romans says it beautifully, but the law reveals our sin? Have you ever noticed that with a young kid? And you say, hey, buddy, uh, I don't want you to touch that. And what do they want to do immediately? I mean, they can't wait to touch it. It's like, I mean, it's like I used to, uh, when I was a student pastor in Albuquerque, way back in the day, in my late 20s, I, I remember when I first started there, or in my early 30s, I would go to those kids and I would say, hey, uh, I'm gonna, I need y'all to help me out. I'm gonna, I need you to do your work. I'm asking you to do. I'm going to step out. Look, I'm asking you, please be quiet. And so I had fun with them. I, I would step out of the door. They thought I was gone. I'd just stand right here. And what did those, what did they do? Just crazy, craziness, craziness squared. It was like explosion And what is it? The law reveals something about us. And how in the world, here's the way a lot of people look at the gospel to this day. You may know people like it and you know what? You may be here today and this is the way you think. And I wanna encourage you, this is not meant to be derogatory to you. This is simply meant to show you the glory of the good news of the gospel. But some people literally think, okay, I've got the rules, now I need to go out and live. This is my GPS my GPS for living. Therefore, if I follow this, I'll, I'll have this and this and this. But the problem is, is that apart from the spirit of God, we have no ability to follow this. A lot of people, that, that's a disconnect. They think, no, wait a minute. I know what I'm supposed to do. And if I do it, I receive the outcome I'm supposed to get. If I do it, I gain God's favor. But here's the problem. The only way mankind, the only way you and I could ever follow the heart of God is if God did an inner work of heart surgery in our lives. Now think with me. What does that reveal to you immediately? It shows you how messed up we are. Think about it, every form of self-righteousness, every form of works-based religion does not agree with that. If you believe you can be good enough to earn your way to God, whether it's through Islam, whether it's through Mormonism, whether it's through... you know, the, the, those that profess Christ that trust more in religious ceremony than Jesus, whatever it may be, whatever form of works, whether it's Catholicism, whether it's Islam, whether it's Buddhism, whatever you come up with Hinduism, whatever it is, it's the sense and it's the theological perspective that I'm good enough to follow the rules in order to be accepted. But the gospel says no none worthy, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God, none righteous. And it says the only way that you ever will be capable of walking in harmony with the commands of God is if you experience the glories and the blessings of the new covenant. Because the new covenant, think about this, we are so weak, we are sinful, we are enemies of God we've committed acts of treason against the holy god the only way our sins can be forgiven is if the god man comes and takes our place at the cross living the life we were required to live dying the death we were required to die and by his grace he accomplishes this establishing the new covenant And now by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, it gets better and better and better. The spirit comes now to live in us, to do through us what we could never do. Now think about that. Some people look at that and go, wait a minute. I thought I was supposed to do something. Well, that's another subject. Right now, this is not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. It's about what Jesus has accomplished. The new covenant is not something we do to participate in its inauguration. It's something Jesus does for those who are dead in their sins and capable of pleasing him. But look at the glory. The glory is he's going to do a work inwardly. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. You know what I love is that Jesus in Matthew 5.17 says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And what do we learn in the gospel when we become Christians in Jesus Christ? Paul says in Colossians, it's now Christ in you, the hope of glory. And now because of Christ, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who fulfilled the law comes to live within us, to enable us to follow the things of God. John 3, this is another way of saying this. Jesus told Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. We need a rebirth. We need a rebirth. We can't be religious enough. We can't go to church enough. We can't be in Bible studies enough. We can't be Southern Baptist enough. We need a substitute. We need Christ. We need the one who came to do for us what we could never do. We need a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We need a risen Savior living in us. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We need a work of the Lord. And look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 about the same topic. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see, the old covenant was external. It was written on tablets of stone, but the new covenant is written on human hearts. It's a work of the spirit. I love this. Jeremiah prophesies about this day. This is one of the promises of the new covenant. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Look at Ezekiel 11, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God over and over and over. And this is what the quote that kept coming back to me. If you've been around here for for a while, you've heard me say this so many times, I hope you memorized it. This is what John Bunyan's saying. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's the gospel. The gospel's not doing good things for God. The gospel is resting and trusting in the perfect work of the great high priest, the only one who can bring us close to God. We move on here, and this just keeps getting better. I want to read you a quote by Spurgeon. He says, that this is about a paragraph, "'The tenor of the covenant of grace is, "'I will and they shall. "'There are no ifs or buts in it. "'It is made up of absolute promises upon God's part "'and cannot be put in jeopardy by the acts of man. "'Hence it is sure. "'The old covenant had an if in it, "'and so it suffered shipwreck. "'It was, if you will be obedient, "'then you shall be blessed.'" And hence there came a failure on man's part and the whole covenant ended in disaster. It was the covenant of works and under it we were in bondage until we were delivered from it and introduced to the covenant of grace, which has no if in it, but runs upon the strain of promise. It is I will and you shall all the way through. The next observation, number five, in the way that... It is internal. Number six, in the way that it is relational. In the way that it is relational. Notice verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I heard one preacher put it like this. He said, you know, under the old covenant, there was a remnant of the people of God, but there were also people like Ahab who were wicked men. They were people that had received the sign and the old covenant of circumcision, but it didn't mean that they all knew God. But under the new covenant, it's a different dynamic. I love this. Remember, all those who are born of the Spirit are being led by the Spirit of God. You see, in the body of Christ, those who are in the new covenant, you don't have to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a teacher or a scholar Or, you know, a really nice church person or this. Anybody that is now in the new covenant is now under the blessings of the new covenant. And what does that mean? Anyone in here that knows Jesus Christ, the promise of the new covenant is that God has done a work inwardly in you, not only inwardly, but relationally. You see, how can you know God apart from God revealing himself to you? We say this often, and I've said it so many times. Have you ever said a phrase so many times that you lost its meaning because you said it so often? But sometimes I do that with this phrase. The goal is not knowing about God. The goal is knowing God. A lot of people know about God. They got their Bibles marked everywhere, but they're not walking with God. They don't know God. You see, the new covenant says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. Look at the end of verse 10, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I love this. This is, we're, you know, for the Christian, this is all about union with Christ. We've received all the blessings because of what Jesus has done. And now we are secure in the arms of the father because of the work of Christ. And he has enabled us through his work at the cross and by the work of the Holy Spirit, now to know him and to relate with him. And now we can know him fully. There's two words used for know here. One is the idea, you've heard this word, it's, it's gnosko. It's the other one, it's, it's a knowledge of experience. It's a knowledge of understanding. The other one is a intuitive knowledge. Have you ever grown up and your mom knew things she shouldn't know? Diana Barber always knew things. I didn't know how she knew it. I'd be like, how did you know that? She's like, I can't explain it. I just know it. And I'd be like, she'd know things about my friends. She'd know where I was at. I'd just like, how did you figure that out? It's a mother's intuitive knowledge. In a similar way, because of the work of the spirit, we now know things we can't explain to others while we know them. It's a work of God. I want you to think about this this morning. Do you know about God or do you know God? Are you someone who's only followed the externals of religion? Or has God done an internal work on your heart? They're different. Has God done something in you? Has God changed you? Are you different? I was telling a story recently to some people about the work of God in a man. I was reading a book about discipleship, and this guy was giving his testimony. If I've told you this, act like you hadn't heard it. And he said he was at a college freshman. He had no interest in the things of God. He was agnostic. He got invited to a Bible study. He didn't want to be there. He thought he was really weird, and he just had to get through it. And God started talking about Christ. Immediately, he was compelled. The next day, the guy took him to lunch. He said it was the worst gospel presentation he had ever heard, and now he's a preacher. He said, like, looking back, I've never heard one worse. The guy never looked at me. He just read a booklet. He looked down and he says, I'm supposed to read this to you. He read it, read it, read it. And the guy's testimony is, I heard the gospel of Christ. I've never been the same since. What happened? Did he get better educated about the things of God? No. The Holy Spirit did a work inwardly the Holy Spirit revealed himself. The Holy Spirit not only allowed him to see the things of God, the Holy Spirit now put his law upon his heart. The Holy Spirit, through the power of the work of Christ, now Christ lived in him. The one who fulfilled the law perfectly now was operating in him. He says, you know, sanctification is a process, but God began to work out of him the fruits that his law had indeed been written upon that man's heart. You see, this is wonderful. Relational. John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Remember John 14? Jesus answered him: If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I know it's different, but I like the illustrative part of it. You remember when Jesus met Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is climbing in the tree, and he just wants to see Christ. He's a smaller guy. Jesus says, come on down, Zacchaeus. I got a meeting with you, and then I love it. He says, I want to go to your house. He goes to his house. You know, they commune together. You see, apart from the new covenant, all we have is distant thoughts about God. We have things that God has said, but we have no access to the things of God. But the new covenant comes, and now for the first time ever, by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, we now can commune with God through the work of Jesus Christ. Now I can get in the Bible, and I can not explain to you, although I can if you're a believer in Christ, and I can and I love this because I remember being an eighth grade student and I was far from my journey on this road of sanctification that I began to realize as I got in the word, the Holy Spirit of God was speaking to me through his word. I knew it. It gave me peace. I remember my parents went out of the country. I was scared. I was a young kid. I remember reading God's word and the Lord comforting me. I remember going through situations in high school, dating, and all kinds of stuff. And I remember the Holy Spirit convicting me and guiding me. I can go story after story after story of my journey in a commune and a walk with God because of the miracle of the new covenant. You see, before it was outward, external, we couldn't know him like this. But now Jesus makes a better way. Why? Because he is our great high priest. It's a whole different deal. John 14, 23. Remember Paul? Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He goes on down here and he says what? He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I wish we could just keep going and going and going here, but this is rich. Finally, in the way that it brings total forgiveness my slide's not working on these points, but in the way that it brings total forgiveness, look at Hebrews nine, twenty-two. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And look what he says. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You see, God designed the sacrificial system. The priests in the line of Aaron, they were doing according to the design of God, But the problem was this, they were temporary coverings. They were year to year. They could not do what only the God man could do. What we needed in order to be truly forgiven is we needed a divine human representative. We needed one like us yet not like us. We needed perfect God. We needed complete man to come and die in our place. And through the shedding of blood, through the new covenant, there comes to be forgiveness of sins. This is amazing. He speaks of the mercy of God. He speaks of the type of trespasses we had against God. He uses the word sin and iniquity. He speaks about God remembering our sins no more. He speaks about the mercy of God. It speaks about God acting favorably to us. It is... um, over and over, I mean, God's mercy, you know, grace, getting what we don't deserve, not getting what we do deserve becomes mercy. God's mercy, rich in Jesus in the new covenant. I want to look at some verses here as we wrap things up. And, and here, look at some of these passages. Acts 13, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I tell you, I, I know it's a very real struggle because I've, I struggle with all these things. And there's no temptation that you've dealt with that's not common to all men. Have you ever thought about that? That's what the Bible teaches us in Corinthians. Sometimes people forget that pastors deal with their flesh and they deal with their fleshly mindset. And, and I've struggled, you know, before, like, am I, am I really forgiven? You know, I've gone through that in my Christian journey and I've gone through doubts at times, and I've gone through all these things, but I tell you, remember what we talked about, and I borrowed it from somebody else, but I think it's really worth repeating. It's like when we develop a high view of Christ, it changes the way we look at things. I tell you, I don't know about you, but but this has been so healthy for me to recognize. Some people say, but wait a minute, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. Some of you have been involved in and, and, and really severe immorality, and you feel so dirty, you feel so shamed, you feel like you have no hope. Under the old covenant, you don't have a chance. Under the new covenant, understand, put your, the grossness of what you perceive, your sin, and how God describes it, and put it next to the glorious perfection and holiness of our high priest a high priest whose sacrifice was so perfect that once he inaugurated the new covenant and once he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, no more need to offer sacrifice because of the perfection of his own. I wanna encourage you today. Some of you are here thinking, there's no way... Stop looking at what you perceive to be your sin and how unforgivable you are and look to the glory of Christ. Because what you find is, is that when sin abounds, grace abounds even more. You see, the beauty is this. The beauty is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ said, I did not come for the the healthy, I came for the sick. And what we see here is the problem so often is people don't understand their need of a high priest. They don't understand their need of a new covenant. But by God's grace, when you begin to see your need, it begins to open you up to the glory of the good news that Christ came for those who are sick. There's forgiveness. Romans 11 And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In the way it was mediated, in the way it is promised, in the way it is necessary, in the way it is established, in the way it is internal, in the way that it is relational, in the way that it brings total peace. Forgiveness. Well, I want to read you something. How many of you remember uh, Tim and Debbie Cassie? Tim Cassie. Um, one thing I have I've done a poor job is is updating you on some things with Tim. Tim is dealing with a very serious cancer, and found out actually he's dealing with two cancers. And I got a message from him. Um, And I I sent it to myself so I could read it to you. Tim sent out a message yesterday about Debbie, and Debbie has a rare cancer herself. And they're dealing with just, uh, they had plans to go on a trip this weekend. The doctor said, you can't go on a trip. You've got to go through immediate treatments. I want to read something to you because this is at the end of all of that just bombshell of life. He says, I just wanted you all to know the latest. Debbie and I are so grateful for the many kind, encouraging, prayerful notes and calls we have received from many of you. We love hearing from you, but if we aren't able to respond to each one, I hope you will understand. Please continue to pray for Debbie and me in this narrowing valley. Pray that we will trust and rest in our good shepherd more and more. I thought about this. How can they respond this way? How can they follow God and not be bitter? How can they follow God through the scariness of cancer and still have hope of heaven? Christ now lives in them, ministers to them as their great high priest, sympathizes with their weakness, ever interceding for them. He has worked internally within their heart. He has worked in such a way internally that they now can follow and walk and know him and experience him daily and they can have full confidence of the total forgiveness of sins. This morning, my question is this. Do you have that hope? Have you come to a place of trusting in the new covenant grace of Jesus Christ? I pray with all my heart today that you would see the glory of the good news of Jesus. And I think about my younger kids here. There's younger kids here. There's, it could be, I remember as a kid, I would go to church and I would hear about the gospel. But because this is relational and because this is a true work of the living God, I can remember though when I got to be a little bit older and all of a sudden all the things I had heard over and over and over and over and over, and over God began to speak to my heart. I want to encourage you, younger people. You may have, like, heard about the good news of Jesus, but I want to encourage you. Your salvation is not based on mom and daddy's salvation. God calls you to trust him. God calls you to know and walk with him. But I want to encourage you, younger people. Jesus says, unless you come into me like a little child, you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. So this morning, wherever you may be, I pray that as we look at God's word, that you would look to Jesus, you would trust in him. I always go back to that prayer of that tax collector in the temple when the Pharisee was pious and so thankful that he was better than other people and that tax collector recognized his sin and he says, Lord, have mercy on me sinner. The new covenant is for people that recognize their spiritual bankruptness. Look to Jesus. Will you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for the richness of your word. I thank you, God, for the hope of your grace. God, thank you that, uh, Apart from your loving, gracious work, none of us would measure up. We could never. We can't measure up apart from measuring up through the righteousness of Jesus. Through the righteousness that's imputed to our account. Oh, God, we praise you. We praise you for your glorious plan. We praise you, Jesus, for the willingness to offer up your body, your life. We thank you, Jesus, for your indestructible life. We thank you, Spirit, for the way that you write such wonders upon our hearts, upon our minds. We praise you, God. Help us as we leave from here today. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has never understood the new covenant and never come to true Christianity, I pray today would be the day of salvation. I pray today, much like the tax collector, they would cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And thank you, Lord, you promise us that you will never cast out anyone who comes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd stand with me in these lives.